Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. If you've listened to the podcast, you know I've talked to people from every state, from Maine to Alaska, Hawaii to Florida, all points in between, from U.S. Senate to borough council like myself. And I'm excited today to go back to South Dakota for the first time in a long time to talk to someone who I think we're going to be friends. If not, well, that's my fault. Uh, she's State Representative Caden Whitman. We're going to learn about why South Dakota is better than any other Dakota uh, and hopefully why you should run for office too. Uh, so you know, before I get into any introduction, I'll let you introduce yourself. Caden, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me on today, Tony. I'm really humbled and honored to be a member or a guest on your podcast today. My name is Kaden Whitman. Like you mentioned, I'm a freshman legislator in District 15, representing the downtown area of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Sioux Falls is our largest city in our state with just over 210,000 uh, individuals that live here and call it home, and I represent the most densely populated district in our state as well. So uh, we didn't discuss this before. I've never been to South Dakota, but I have been to Sioux City, Iowa, which is very close to where you are, right? Yep, it's about an hour away, and it is a uh, common thing to get mixed up when people think Sioux City or Sioux Falls. They kind of can go either way. Do they fly into Sioux City? Uh, we fly to Sioux Falls. We have our own airport. Oh, fancy. That yeah, is Sioux really... City is actually not in South Dakota. It's in Iowa. I know. That's why I, that's why I was there, to be in Iowa. But I have never made it across the border. I've been to the other bordering states, but not to South Dakota. So that's my mistake. Uh, so I always ask people to begin with, have you always been politically minded? I, I know you, you're very involved in voting and, 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 and political issues in general because I followed you. Um, but has that always been part of your identity or did something really encourage you to go beyond like, I'm going to vote in elections to being active? Yeah, so I never had any intentions or plans to be involved in the political sphere uh, until, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background into my career. I've worked in nonprofits my entire adult career and specifically nonprofits that provide resources and programming to populations that have traditionally been marginalized and vulnerable. And so in March of 2020, I made the bold decision to leave my job. I had worked at the ACLU for five years um, and I was going to take a couple of months off and figure out what I wanted to do with my life and kind of regroup and move forward. And then two weeks later, we had a global pandemic and I desperately needed health insurance and some sort of stability in my life. Uh, I had been a longtime volunteer at a homeless shelter located just a couple of blocks from my home. And so I reached out to the executive director there, who was a friend of mine. And I asked if they were hiring, if they needed any help. I mean, I was, I was desperate mm. and they were equally desperate. And so they hired me on to their staff there. And so I accepted a job at a homeless shelter in April of 2020. And not just any homeless shelter, but what is considered the wet shelter of the east side of our state. So it's the only shelter where individuals who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol can go and still utilize all of the services that are available there. So a very difficult population to work with made even more difficult by the fact that we were in a global crisis and there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation and fear going around. So mm -hmm. 
All that to say, I worked at the homeless shelter for about a year and a half, and I loved the work that I did. I loved the individuals that I got to advocate for and build relationships with, but I still found myself getting into my car at the end of every day, and I would drive home in complete silence, just crying, because every single day I had to look somebody in the eye who is already in probably one of the most vulnerable positions they'll ever be in, and tell them that there's no resources, there's no programs available Mm. to them. And one thing in particular that always really bothered me was the fact that these individuals could not afford the $28 that it costs to get a state ID. And you need a state ID if you want to get back to work, if you want to sign a lease on an apartment, if you want to open a bank account. I mean, if you want to do anything in this world, you need some form of identification that proves you are who you say you are. And so I was paying out of my own pocket for these individuals to get their state IDs until my executive director found out and got really mad and was mm-hmm. basically like, you can't do that. Like we have, like it just, it puts me and the client in a difficult situation in which I understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was, I was at a girlfriend's house shortly after that had happened. And I was just really angry. And I was like, why is there not a box that you can check when you go into the DMV that says I am literally homeless, but I need this ID to move my life forward. Why can't somebody fix that? Why can't somebody change that? And my, my good friend caught me in a moment of weakness and she was like, well, why don't you change it? Why don't you run and change mm-hmm. it? And I, I, again, moment of weakness or sheer insanity. And I was like, yeah, why don't I run and change that? And so I decided I was going to run for office and I didn't really have a plan, but I was like, listen, there's got to be a way for us to figure this out. So I launched my campaign in early tw- January, 2022. I spent the entire year just working my butt off. I knocked on over 4,400 doors. I had conversations with more than 1,800 people. Uh, And then fast forward to election day, and I won by 97 votes. So I I barely squeaked in, right? Mm -hmm. And that was after working so, so, so incredibly hard. Um, I went to my first legislative session. I brought my ID bill for unhoused individuals and it died a really painful death. Um, I did not see the hurdle that would be educating my rural legislators on what homelessness looks like and what resources need to be created or provided in order to help individuals out of that cycle of poverty Mm -hmm. and homelessness. So, um, that's a long-winded answer to your question, which is basically saying I never saw a future in politics for myself until I became literally so angry that I wasn't seeing any other politicians trying to advocate for these individuals. And it's especially important to me because my district, District 15, houses most of the resources for individuals who are unhoused. So we have three shelters in my district. We have county human services. We have two free community clinics. We have our soup kitchen. It just, it makes sense that these individuals would be a center part of the conversation for this district, but I hadn't seen that happen yet. And it kind of came down to a, if not me, then who moment. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, there's a big difference between um, political work, being in office and that kind of work, and then issue advocacy. 
you see mm-hmm. some just in your short time you see some of the pluses and minuses of both when you're trying to do something big or important like housing issues uh, is there a better tack do you need both at the same time you know what have you learned something already that people who care about any issue might be able to take from that yeah i think one of the biggest um takeaways that i have tried to incorporate into my work is this there's a very clear need for this to be bipartisan action we are in the democrats in south dakota are in a super minority there Mm -hmm. are 11 of us out of 105 legislators so and I've, I've always been one who I want to work with individuals. I want to do coalition building. I want to be palms up in my approach. Um, but I just, again, it kind of circles back to the fact I didn't realize how much education would need to be done for the 80% of our legislators that represent rural parts of our state where they don't see homelessness the way that I see it in my district. Um, so, but kind of going back to your question about, you know, the housing crisis that we're seeing along with people who are unhoused, how do we... How do we, I think it's a chicken and egg situation because we need both to happen alongside each other. Um, but it's very, very difficult to get buy-in to create more affordable housing when you're talking about these individuals who, even if we had the affordable housing, they don't have the documentation necessary to access it. So I think it's 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 a yes and mm-hmm. is the answer to that. And, and your solution, your, your basic solution about making sure they have the right identification seems rather simple it doesn't sound controversial um were you surprised by the pushback yes um so i i was really surprised by it and yet i also wasn't because during my time during my tenure working at the homeless shelter um it's not sexy or glamorous to advocate for people who are unhoused uh especially in America where we tend to view poverty as some kind of moral failing. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I would try to have conversations with people about the struggle of being homeless and a lot of the barriers that are in place, I was often met with the response of, well, what did they do wrong to land themselves there? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, I think the reason for that, if I just, and this is just me kind of spitballing a little bit, but I think the main reason for that is because if, we as individuals had to actually recognize how close we are to experiencing homelessness ourselves. I mean, statistically, most Americans are one or two paychecks away from finding themselves in that position. Mm -hmm. And if we had to recognize how close we could actually be to this issue, we would have to see ourselves in the individuals that are currently struggling with this. And then we would have to have empathy and we would have to make a change so that they aren't struggling in the same way. But because we've distanced ourselves so far from the people that are currently experiencing it, it makes it really hard to advocate for them and for those resources. So um, I was surprised by the pushback. um, But at the same time, I wasn't because South Dakota is very much a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality kind of state. Uh, And so I think I just, I, I planted some good seeds last year, mm-hmm. but we're definitely going to have to do a little bit more education and outreach and uh, bipartisan coalition building in order to move this bill closer to the finish line. Now, have you, in, in working on that legislation, working on things of like that, did you look at any policies from outside of South Dakota say, and, and what what's worked in other states that you think could work there? Because uh, I've talked with people from Montana, for instance, mm-hmm. their housing issues are very different, but also very similar. 
Uh, you know, it's a different kind of state, but a lot of the same issues, I assume. And it does seem like there's some bipartisan um, coalition building. Their governor's yeah. not been helpful. But what have you have you seen anything that you think could be successful? Yes. So actually, I was awarded earlier this year, I was awarded a national fellowship to study youth homelessness mm-hmm. through the National Conference of State Legislators. And one of my Republican colleagues in the House was also awarded that fellowship. So he and I traveled to Nashville and Denver together. And we met with some of their policymakers. We tried to learn from the steps that they've taken to work on eradicating this issue and mitigating it. Um, And so one thing that we are going to be doing, myself, my Republican colleague and myself, are we're going to be bringing um, two partner bills. So he is going to be bringing, first, he will introduce a bill that would allow for people who are unhoused to access their birth certificate for free. Hmm. And we're going to utilize that as an opportunity for him to educate his Republican colleagues um, on why access to vital documents is really important and why waiving that fee is important. And then once we've kind of set the groundwork for that, we'll be introducing um, my ID bill again. Mm-hmm. And so there are there's not a lot of states that are have introduced vital document legislation, but it's it's there's an uptick in it. Um, and so I can pull up. I have give me just one moment. I can pull up my bills and um, talk a little bit about some of the other states that we've modeled it after. But there are several other states that have offered um, to waive the fee for state IDs and birth certificates um, for people who are unhoused. So it's not an unheard of thing and it's not something that we need to prove is effective because we, well, we do need to prove it's effective, but we're seeing it be effective in other States around the nation. Yeah. I tend to consider myself pretty liberal. I followed your politics and um, you know, we probably share a lot of the same views from talking to people both who are allies and, you know, not supporters. Um, how, you know, how have you approached that issue? Because I find it, especially now, because we have a number of global conflicts and we don't need to talk about those because that's not what South Dakota is about, probably. But it seems like it's always so easy to get the approval for more bombs, more police, more security measures. And those are important. I don't want to like say they're not important, but no one ever says, well, if we hire three more police, will that be effective? Well, if we buy another aircraft carrier, will that be effective? Like, has that ever... Yeah, you know, what do you think about that kind of issue? Um, where like allocation of funds and yeah, like just our priorities when it comes to whether it's a state or federal issue, it just seems like there's always room for you know pushing people down. There's always money for that, but when it comes to like, well, you know, how do we get this? Well, we got to measure, we got to spend time, get a study. It just seems like you're not talking about a billion dollars there, right? No, it actually, if I remember the fiscal note correctly, I think it was like. $88,000 a year, which what somebody referred to it as a rounding error yeah. when they were talking to me. And that was, that was the moment where I was like, Oh my God, uh, this it is literally a rounding error in our state budget. And I am fighting tooth and nail for it. And I can't get it across the finish line. But one of my colleagues, you know, across the aisle can bring a bill that appropriates $5 million to beautify our Capitol building. And it sails through like, it was, it was the most, I felt like I was on a reality TV show some days. Um, and so I don't know how much of that is related to me as a Democrat in our state. It's really difficult to gauge because 
I think it's a good idea. I think it's a very practical, common sense idea. I think the reason why government exists is to do things like this. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm still a Democrat in an extremely conservative red state. And so sometimes my ideas get dismissed just because of that, not because of the merit of them. Um, what I would say about, I think it's, it's interesting you mentioned um, military funding uh, and how, so I, th yeah, you're right. There always seems to be money for military spending, even though we spend more than the next 23 first world countries combined. Um, and yet again, $88,000 a year to help people who are unhoused access a vital document that they need to move their life forward is considered a handout. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, it's really frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish I had a better answer. Uh, yeah. If you did, then you'd be being paid a lot more money or you, hopefully you get recognized more. Um, you know, when it comes to, there's a lot of states now where one party is in a super majority. It seems like there's a lot of that kind of political division. and um, But there's a few that have just a tiny majority, and it seems like they're able to get a lot done. Like right next, right nearby in Minnesota. I know, they're my ideal. I think everyone wants to be like Minnesota these days. Um, when, I, you, when you look at them, what, I, do you, what do you feel jealous of most when you look at Minnesota across the way? So I grew up in Minnesota. I was born and raised in Minnesota, and my family still calls Minnesota home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting to me because my parents are very conservative, if you can believe it or not. Um, and I will never forget this past legislative session. I, I was the champion and I carried the bill for free school lunches in South Dakota. And I called my dad and I was talking to my dad about Minnesota's bill because it had just passed. And I was like, oh, my gosh, isn't that so cool? And my dad said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. My taxpayer dollars are going to be wasted and oh, how stupid. And I had to, I had to tell my dad that I was carrying that same bill in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think, I think Minnesota is a really interesting case study because in the metropolitan area, in the Twin Cities area, it's very, very socially liberal. Um, Obviously, they're doing incredible things for feeding kids, the uh, driver's licenses for everybody. You know, they've been one of the forerunners in terms of COVID vaccinations. Um, and yet, Minnesota is a dirty word in South Dakota politics. Oh, sure. <laughs> Minnesota is, you do not ever want to, if you bring a piece of legislation and it is modeled or you even mentioned that it came from Minnesota, it's DOA. So, but which is really difficult for me because I grew up in that state. I love that state. My family calls that state home. I am, I think 18 miles from the border and yet they have so many more resources and programs. And I think about my family specifically, my younger brother is, um, has extreme medical needs. He's utilized a wheelchair his whole life. And if my parents lived in any state other than Minnesota, they would be medically bankrupt. But because Minnesota has such incredible programs for people with disabilities, my family was able to stay afloat and was able to survive these high medical bills. Mm -hmm. um, but my parents don't acknowledge that part of living in a more blue state. And so it's it, there's this kind of tension in our family and in our home when I go to visit because they directly are beneficiaries of these Democrat policies but they don't want to admit it or accept it. Yeah, 
you know, the podcast is called You Should Run. And I think there's a lot of people who look at a state like uh, South Dakota, state like even in a blue state like Massachusetts. Like, why should I run? Some other Democrats going to win anyway. Or again, a state that's very conservative, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alabama, etc. They say, if I run, even if I win, I won't be able to do anything. I won't be able to because the other party controls it. What would you say that kind of mentality that probably gets people to be very defeatist before they even set foot on the campaign? Yeah, I think you need to be really clear about why you actually want to run. Mm -hmm. Because I look back specifically on the last seven years, eight years, and I think that former President Trump set an example, or he at least created the illusion that anybody can be a politician. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of individuals around the U.S. Um, who had never thought about politics before or who thought about entering politics for the wrong reasons felt emboldened. And so what I would say to individuals that are thinking about running but maybe are feeling discouraged or aren't sure is if you know in your heart that you're running for the right reasons. I remember just putting a little, putting a little story in. I remember the night before election night last year, I was laying in bed next to my partner was sleeping and I couldn't sleep because I was, you know, so nervous. Um, and I just remember thinking, even if I lose, it was worth it. It was worth it to talk to all the people I did to be vocal and visible about what I believe in. Even if I didn't win, it was worth it. And so I think if you are going to run for the right reasons, then that is what you will feel at the end of the day, even if you don't win. It's about that inner knowledge that you are doing it because you genuinely believe you are the best person for this job and that you, yeah, that you are doing it for the right reasons, I think is the most important part. And then you, even if you don't win the race, you're still a winner mm -hmm. because you, you did the work. Now, one of the things people look at when they look at, uh, you know, having a super minority in a state as a Democrat is, you know, if we just get to a point where we um, can break the supermajority, like in Wisconsin, that's something that they, they care a lot about because then they can uh, fix gerrymandering, they can do other things, they can stop a lot of bad things. And if they can stop bad things, then they can move to the majority. You're looking at issues like, like especially helping uh, people with housing and documents. That's a very short-term issue. Do you ever think about the balance about, uh, you know, what you need to accomplish now and the difficulties there versus maybe long-term party planning because not celebration, but like helping the democratic party, maybe, you know, get enough seats. You know, what do you think is the right kind of balance and vision there about, uh, you know, looking not just the next session, but the next 10 years down the road. Yeah. I actually think 10 years might be too short-sighted. Um, yeah. Just think, in general. Yeah. I think a lot of Democrat uh, state Democrat parties are too short-sighted mm -hmm. in their goals. Um, I look at specifically the Republican Party, and we can clearly see when we look back over the last five decades that they've had a playbook. Um, they they have had a roadmap that they have been following. And it just it it is disheartening to me that the Democratic Party hasn't kept up with that and hasn't really made moves to to do that. But specifically in South Dakota, um, our South Dakota, I will be I mean, I'm just gonna be candid with you. Our South Dakota Democratic Party is pretty dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two staff members, both located in Sioux Falls, which is on the very east side of our state. So they don't really do a ton of work in the rural and west side of our state. Um, 
And there is just, there is, there's nothing for Democrats in South Dakota to rally behind. Mm -hmm. Um, Our governor is very conservative and has been pretty transparent about uh, not signing into law any Democrat bills that land on her desk at the end of session. Um, And so it can be easy to feel disheartened and for Democrat voters in our state to not feel like they're seeing any sort of return on their vote or on their representation. So again, I, I don't have a good answer for it because what would, what we need is this, we need a big influx of cash. Mm -hmm. That's we need our Democrat party to have a couple million dollars funneled into it where we can actually do voter outreach, voter registration, voter education, help individuals get to the polls who maybe haven't in the past. Um, And then I specifically think as well about our indigenous populations we have in South Dakota and their access to voting. And that has been a point of contention in our state for a long time. It actually was only in 2017, I would have to double check, but where tribal IDs could be utilized for voting. So South Dakota has got a long ways to go in terms of our Democratic Party being bolstered and and rebuilding that faith that the community has in our party. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of pressure on individuals like myself who are young Democrat legislators who are kind of new to the game and uh, don't have a ton of that institutional and historical knowledge. So it's just continuing to have conversations and I guess praying that the National Democratic Party takes an interest in us and decides we're worth the investment. Well, I'm actually in my next podcast episode, which I'm recording very soon, is with someone from the DLCC. And I'm going to be saying, like, you know, you have Nebraska, which just had this huge fight about abortion rights. You have uh, Kansas and all the things happening there. You have South Dakota. You have a lot of states. You know, there, there seems to be a big focus on needing to flip legislatures, which they did. Last year was very successful for Democrats on a local level, but I imagine if you're looking at at state legislative campaigns in places like South Dakota, you're not talking about um, hundreds of thousands of dollars per district like you are in Virginia. Like they're spending a ton of money in Virginia on this year's elections, which is great, I guess, if you're thinking about money. But like it's good that they care about those elections. But the return on investment is a lot different in, in more rural parts of the country. I ran my campaign. I think I fundraised a total of $21,000 and I ran my campaign and I think I spent 15 or 16,000 and Mm -hmm. like it is extremely doable. South Dakota is actually a very, I don't want to say affordable place to run a campaign because it's, I mean, that's still not affordable. It's still really classist that running a good campaign costs that much money. Um, But South Dakota is definitely a place where a influx of cash could make a difference when you started running because you had not run before you'd not really been on an active campaign before when you people yeah. give get you thousands of dollars like people aren't writing thousand tens of thousands of dollar checks for you but once you start is doesn't uh that a weird feeling that you have ten thousand dollars or more that's for you it's a weird feeling it, your first time candidate it's extremely weird and it's also very humbling because to me, that just represents that people believe in me. I mean, they get absolutely no ROI on that mm-hmm. other, than, other than if I win and I am a good representative, right? But for so many of the people that donated to my campaign, and you're right, they're not thousands of dollar donations. They're $25 here, $50 there. Um, these are everyday 
working class people, some of who I, some of whom I know, some who I don't, who saw something in my campaign and in my messaging that resonated with them and they believed was worthy of investment. And that is so incredibly humbling to me. And I hope that I never get to the point in my political career, if I even have a political career, like that's, that's beside the point, people that talk in terms of that. Um, but I, if I get, I hope I never get to a point in my political career where I don't feel humbled and grateful mm-hmm. for that support from those just everyday individuals that are involved in the way that they can be. And you're talking about decades and my first political campaign was in Iowa. Like I said, I was, I spent at least a week in South, uh, in Sioux city, but, uh, mm-hmm. At that time, in 2002, Tim Johnson won re-election in South Dakota. It, I went to the party campaign for our organization in D.C. that fall, and everyone was like, it was the best campaign ever. And we're like, ah, what do we, what do we care about Tim Johnson? We just helped Tim, Tom Harkin. He's the best. Uh, but, um, you know, you had two Democratic senators in 2003 from South Dakota, and this was when a Republican was president. It seemed like this is not going to happen. Um, what do you think? But now you look at Iowa, you look at South and North Dakota that used to all have Democrats in in, uh, the Senate, uh, and now the rural representation is dwindling for Democrats nationally. What do you think that does for national policy when you have fewer, you know, government-minded, democratic, progressive people representing rural states? How do you think that affects policy? Yeah, I think it it does kind of, it does a few things. Um, And just as a side note, uh, Tim and Barb Johnson are constituents of mine. They live just a couple blocks away from me. They're so wonderful them, human beings. <laughs> I see them all the time. They live above a coffee shop and mm-hmm. every morning Tim takes the elevator down in his little electric scooter and scoots to the coffee shop, gets his coffee and goes back up to his apartment. So they're lovely, lovely people. Awesome. Um, I think, I actually think it's kind of dangerous that Democrat voices seem to be dwindling in our rural areas, especially as the conversation around ag and our uh, and our our nation's reliance on agriculture and exportation and and importation of those goods. Um, And I think it also it perpetuates this idea that big cities are these social liberal hellscapes and these small towns are where the good family values are. And so I think it really just perpetuates that kind of weird feeling that people have. Um, And I also, I think it, it emboldens Republicans in rural parts of our state and our nation to revert a little bit back into some of the rhetoric and actions that we saw, you know, I think specifically about the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and where we, how is it possible that in the year 2023, I'm reading an article about sundown towns, like in America, that is insane to me, but because these rural parts of the state and the nation and these smaller towns have had so much brain drain with Democrat leaning individuals, what we're seeing is just this perpetuation of, of, extremely conservative, small rural parts of the world, um, and this concentration of more liberal, progressive-minded individuals in large cities. So it's I don't think it's good for anyone. I'm a huge fan of having robust conversations with people from all different backgrounds and belief systems and, you know, life experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, when you have a supermajority one way or the other, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, 
you tend to get stuck into this, like your, your own silo. Right. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you're never challenged and you're not hearing these opposing viewpoints that might actually help you sharpen your own argument. So I love having a lot of different voices in the room and I hope to someday have that in South Dakota. Um, but right now it's just not, not something we have. Yeah. And I've heard from people who are in more very democratic states who kind of wish that they were like Minnesota and Michigan because they have like a fire under their butt of getting things done. And in other states, they might not have that same, you know, need to get things done. Now you've worked with these Republicans who represent the rural parts of uh, South Dakota. It's not like they're winning because they have great policies for rural and agricultural communities, right? Like, it's not like, oh, well, of course you're going to vote for Frank and Steve and Janet. They, they really understand how to improve you know, the, the rural towns and make sure that we can take care of farmers. That's not the reason like that their top motivation, right? Yeah. I think that that was actually one of the hardest things for me when I first went to our state Capitol. Um, I was really naive. I thought most people, I thought most people ran for office because they were like me mm-hmm. and they wanted to help people and they wanted to, change the world, make a difference, remove barriers. Um, and what I found instead was that a lot of people, particularly men, are there seeking legacy. Um, they want someone to still be saying their name in 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I don't have a big enough ego to think that anyone's going to remember my name in 50 years. And I'm really okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but There are a lot of people, specifically in South Dakota, I can't speak to other states, but there are a lot of people that pursue politics and serving in our state legislature because they retired. Mm -hmm. They're a farmer or a rancher, and that is slow season for them. Or they are seeking legacy and name recognition, and they want a pat on the back. Um, And that was a really difficult concept for me to grasp. Again, just because I I went there with these rose colored glasses on, I thought I thought we were going to link arms and sing kumbaya and try to tackle these big issues, and it just more often than not, I would get the response. You know, somebody would be like, "Oh, that's so cute that you thought that." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that does bring me to the one kind of final question I want to ask, and I've been asking a lot of uh, legislators, especially those who've had to fight back against um, a Republican majority. You, the, the people in uh, South Dakota, the governor, uh, the Republicans controlling the legislature, they've pushed some really draconian rules, um, culture war stuff, and I followed you on social media. I know that it's just really hard personally to deal with that. My U.S. Senator, John Fetterman, I really appreciate that he's really put mental health on the foreground. He's talked about it on the Colbert report this week. Um, you know, how, what do you do for yourself to take care of mental health? And do you, anything you recommend for others who might be going into politics, especially facing these headwinds? Like, do you have any recommendations for them? Yeah. So obviously I can't speak to what everyone's experience is like and what works for them, but what I have found personally keeps me grounded and keeps me motivated to continue doing this work is to engage with a lot of um, gratitude in a specific way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I made it a practice during legislative session that every day when I woke up, I would list three things that I was grateful for that had happened the day before, 
three things that I was looking forward to that day. Um, and what I found was as I started to write these things down, because that way you're able to gather data, right? You're able to see patterns um, and you might notice something in retrospect that you didn't at the time. And what I found was that by allowing myself to feel gratitude for experiences, even if they weren't necessarily positive, it shaped my future interactions with that person. And it also, um, it helped to alleviate some of the anger and the bitterness that can come with serving as a minority in a supermajority legislature. Um, because again, it circles back to what I said about why you should run. If you're there for the right reasons, if you know in your heart that you're doing this work for the right reasons and you're doing it to the best of your abilities and you allow yourself to feel gratitude for that, it can keep you focused and it keeps that fire burning for you trying to make a change instead of getting burnt out and feeling jaded and bitter. And I just want to throw in the towel. I don't want to do this anymore. It's, it's finding those small, small everyday moments to feel grateful for. I think that's a beautiful answer. I, I appreciate it a lot. Um, one thing I would also appreciate though, is if people want to reach out to you, cause you have a lot of really good things to say, great perspective on just a year's worth of doing this or a little over a year considering you're running as well. Um, what's the best way people can reach out to you, follow you on social media website, you know, how do you want to connect? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm pretty spicy on Twitter. I've mm -hmm. been told that, uh, some of my Republican colleagues are not as appreciative of that, but <laughs> it's Twitter, like get over it guys. Right. Um, so definitely follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. My website is Whitman for house or Kaden Whitman for house <laughs> dot, dot com. Um, and, uh, just, you can always email me. My email is publicly available and I love to hear from people. I love to get input from other individuals, especially if they're individuals from a state with a similar political climate as to South Dakota and if they've seen success with any of these issues. I would appreciate any and all perspective. <laughs> Great. Well, I know I've talked to people, especially from like Oklahoma uh, and other places where, you know, there's sometimes there is a coalition to be had. Like there's like a almost like a three parties in the state. There's the Democrats, there's the business Republicans, and then there's the, as we would call them, conspiracy or QAnon Republicans. And it's we call we call them the Freedom Caucus here. Well, and they have there was Freedom Caucus here in Pennsylvania now, too, that's new. And it's. It's really unfortunate because we like where I am in southeastern Pennsylvania, there used to be a lot of Republicans in office and they were rather moderate people. I wouldn't have voted for them necessarily because I didn't agree with their policies. But mm -hmm. there's a former Republican uh, state rep who's on my calls about addressing climate change. Obviously, she's not in office anymore, but like you wouldn't see that with the current Republican makeup of our legislature. I think I'm sorry. I don't mean to I don't mean to like add on to this, That's but fine. it's so it is so funny to me, not funny, but it is it's laughable to me that caring about the planet is considered this like woke, social, like liberal perspective. And I'm like, do you, do the do you not care about the earth? Like this is not a partisan issue. It is. It does. I I, I so I talked to a, a, uh, speaking about um, conservative states. Talked to State Representative Spencer Wetmore from. Uh, uh, South Carolina. 
really smart. She used to work in local government. She was, in, and they would do grants for the state government to work on uh, coastal erosion issues. And the whole reason they have these coastal issues is because of climate change. And so we talked about how, like, she couches the language of those grant applications or how she talks to legislators. So it's not about the climate change. Uh, she's not lying, but she's just choosing her words carefully. Is that something you have to do, like a code switch about talking to real people versus Republicans? Oh, my God, yes. Of course, yes. Um, even the, the rhetoric that I will use around, um, for example, my state ID bill, um, Republicans in South Dakota love the terminology hand up. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to, because it, it insinuates the idea that we're extending a hand, but the person's doing most of the work themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Which is which is how Republicans want it to be. Mm -hmm. So utilizing that rhetoric instead of, you know, referring to it as like a resource or a supportive mechanism, like it's, it's code switching. Absolutely. And it's interesting that this happens a lot from my experience of talking with people, especially in red states. And these are the same people who will side with that joke of uh, facts don't care about your feelings. Don't be emotional about stuff. It's like, well, clearly, if you're saying two plus two equals four, but just saying it in a different way, it's the same exact thing. You're caring about your feelings more than you are about the policy. Yes, absolutely. And you care more about your feelings than you do about the data. Yeah. That's what always gets me. Is I'm like, I, what data can I show you that you will accept? And is, I imagine, especially because you have rural communities, the climate environment, dry seasons, rain, what, you know, the, the kind of the, the stock for animals and what they can survive on, you know, that it's more impactful for rural communities than yeah. it is for here in Philadelphia. And agriculture is actually South Dakota's largest economy. Right. And so I was actually appointed to our agricultural committee, which is so funny because I represent the most urban district in our state and I live in a loft mm -hmm. and I don't even have grass and I'm a vegetarian, mm -hmm. but I'm the one I'm on a, I'm on a committee of 10 other individuals that make all the decisions about our cattle and our farming practices and pesticides, like all these things. Right. Um, and it is considered this like badge of honor to be on the agricultural committee. Mm -hmm. So some folks were kind of miffed about it when I was appointed to it. Um, but what I found, what I actually discovered was all the other individuals that are on the egg committee who are these fourth generation farmers, seventh generation ranchers, you know, these, these folks that are really entrenched in egg, they care deeply about the environment mm -hmm. and they care because it is their family's livelihood. But even they, even they will not utilize the words climate change when they know it is the truth because it is still more important to them to be in line with their party politics than it is to protect their own livelihood. It is, it is the most crazy thing. It's like there was someone who posted about an edit to a New York times article about the horrible atrocities that happened this weekend. And someone like said, Oh, instead of terrorists, they said gunmen. It was like, both of those are bad things. Like I've yeah. got, no one's advocated that they're good people because they said gunmen. I don't know. And I guess it yeah. wasn't even true, but like they were more up in arms about like what word they used. But it's like, maybe we should address caring for the people more than we should care about whether they said the T word or the G word. Yeah. The verbiage of it. <laughs> so with that, all those frustrations, so we have to end on a positive note. Well, we don't have to, right. but we should. Um, can you give like just a quick sentence about like 
why you would tell people today in 2023 why someone like you, younger person, especially a woman, because we don't, there's only two states where women make up the majority of the legislature, um, why you would encourage others to run for office today. Yeah, so I'm not just a young woman. I am the youngest woman in our state legislature by a significant margin. That's not surprising. <laughs> I didn't have to look that up. <laughs> so um, what would I tell them? I think I would tell them that you're going to be scared and you're going to try and talk yourself out of it. And there's going to be times where you want to throw in the towel. And you should do it anyways. Because... If you genuinely believe you, again, I just keep thinking about this. If you think you are the best person for this job, if you think that you've got the stamina and the grit and the fortitude and you genuinely want to make your community and your state and your nation a better place, then you are the best person for it. Yeah. And you know that firsthand because you've met people who don't see the same way. Um, With that in mind, Caden, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck. I will have to say there is a boy with your similar name in my son's class, and he is the best in math in the whole school district. It's very frustrating for my son because he can never pass him in the monthly competition for math bros. But Well, so Caden is definitely, uh, it's, def- it's tr- trended towards a boy's name. Mm-hmm. And I was actually in the grocery store last weekend just minding my own business. And all of a sudden I hear this mom and she's like, Kaden, pull it together. And I swear in my heart, all of a sudden I was seven years old again and I was like scared and I look and it's this little boy who's like just messing around. But it, it was, it was just such a funny moment that I was like, <laughs> well, it wasn't us. Not that I've never said something similar, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much for running. I really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck. If there's anything I can do to connect with folks, um, you know, if we're going to care about people, it can't just be the people in our own towns and neighborhoods. We need to care about, especially as Democrats, people in South Dakota and everywhere. So thank you, Caden. And if you're listening, maybe you should run for office too. Yes, everybody should. <laughs>